Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning services to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore the Christian faith, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into the Word of God. So listen in as we jump into what the Lord has for us today. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on a single sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Church Center app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in. Amen. Hey, good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you before, my name is Nick Allen. I'm the campus pastor here at the Nashville location of Rolling Hills. Um, as Brandon, our college pastor, mentioned earlier this morning, this is a one-off day for us. We're going through the entire book of Ezra. Um, some might say we're going through the entire Old Testament, and I would agree. So I'm going to talk fast, you're going to buckle up, and we're going to have a great morning. The family that I come from loves puzzles. And, and so we've imparted that onto my children. They like to do puzzles too. In fact, when we go visit my parents, um, their grandparents, my mom will often have a card table set up and a puzzle that they can do over the duration of the visit. And we're puzzle people. And I tell you this this morning, even knowing that I'm slightly embarrassed about it, um, not the fact that we do puzzles. Um, actually, it's the way we do puzzles. Like it's hardcore competition puzzle um, attempting. So whenever somebody finds a piece, I don't know the origins of this. In fact, it might be my younger sister. I'm not so sure. But whenever you find a piece to the puzzle, you brag and throw shade on all of the other people who haven't found a piece in a while by saying, found a piece, found a piece, found a piece. Like it's this, and you say it three times in a row, like really quickly. Um, it annoys one of my children. She doesn't like it because she feels like it's um, bragging in the moment, but we do it anyway. So like you find a piece, you put it down, you're like, found a piece, found a piece, found a piece. And like even my mom gets in on the mix, she's like, found a piece, found a piece, found a piece. Like we, we do this thing over and over and over again. And I have one daughter, and I won't tell you which one it is, people will speculate, it's okay, who will often at the beginning of the puzzle find a way to take one of the pieces and slide it into her pocket. <laughs> so that later at the end, when we've nearly put all the pieces together and we're all hoarding the last couple of pieces because we want to be the person who puts the final piece in the puzzle, there will be one missing. And we will not assume, like most of you, that, oh, well, we just lost a piece of the puzzle because, like socks, they disappear, and it just happens over time. No, we will be on hands and knees looking for that piece of the puzzle, knowing that it's there, only to find out that the whole time she had it in her pocket, she was going to put it on a piece, down a piece, down a piece, to the very last one. And we land this morning in the book of Ezra. And, and what I want you to understand more than anything else um, is that the way that God has put together scripture, the way that we engage this word, the way that we look at history books, the way that we look at prophecy books, the way that we look at his law, and the way that we understand the gospel, there is a powerful puzzle coming together. And more than anything else, there is one piece of that puzzle that matters more than any other piece. And so this morning we gave just one message. It leads into what we're going to talk about over the next series of messages in the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn them to the book of Ezra. It's squarely in the middle before you get to Psalms in the Old Testament. We're going to go through most of this book, but understand the ways that it fits together with the whole narrative of Scripture. And we see these pieces. When you understand the words of the prophets speaking during the times of the kings, and when you understand the things that were happening in the times of the kings coming from the law 
that God had handed down to a people that he chose. In the book of Genesis, he signs this guy Abraham to be the father of the nations, the people that he selected for his own special possession. They make their way. You can read the story. There's some miraculous things that happen along the way to being slaves in Egypt, and they need a rescuer. God sees the oppression of his people, and he provides for them a rescuer. You Old Testament scholars know that that's Moses. He comes. A whole series of other miracles take them out of captivity in Egypt on their way to the land that God had provided. A new leader would come up. His name was Joshua. He was going to help the people enter that land. But before they did, God gave them a law and a way to live. He gave them this understanding of this is how you're going to be my people. When you go into the land that I gave you to possess and all the other nations are surrounding you, this is how you were going to distinctly and squarely be my people. So they go. A kingdom is established. You get a couple of kings who are really, really famous in the mix. You got David. You got Solomon. And because of Solomon, why is this king that ever lived? And this is one of the things that I cling to in Scripture. If the man who was noted as the wisest in all of Scripture could have the fall that he had, I need to be protected. Because he did, and he fell, and when he fell, the whole kingdom fell. It was divided into two, and it made them more susceptible to invasion, and that's exactly what happened. The northern kingdom fell, then the southern kingdom fell, and they have now been inhabited by other nations. Kelly Minter is leading. Dear friend, great Bible scholar. She's actually teaching at our Franklin campus this morning. Y'all should have gone there. Okay, no, she's teaching <laughs> the book of Esther on Wednesday nights, and it's for women. I get it. It's a women's Bible study, but I've been sitting up in the balcony taking feverish notes. One day, I'm just going to throw all caution to the wind and be on the front row table at the bottom. She's been using these images, and every week she comes in and she's like, I wish I had one of those laser pointers. We got her one. So she doesn't know it. Don't tell her. Um, But you look at the map of what was going on in the divided kingdom. You read about these stories in the Old Testament history books around the times of the kings and the chronicles, and this, this kid named Daniel, if you know Old Testament prophecy, he's living in the land of Jerusalem, God's chosen place where he chose to put his name, um, where he crafted his people, the special land that he called them to possess, and they were invaded by the Babylonian armies. And when that happened, they were carried from Jerusalem. Look how good this works. Like if you were a cat, you'd be freaking out right now. Like all the way back to Babylon to learn the customs of the Babylonians and to live according to their ways. I'll do it on this side too so that y'all see. Like there's Jerusalem and they're carted back off to Babylon. It was the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, you got the whole like um, bow down to the statue and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do it. So they got thrown into a fiery furnace and then Daniel, he wouldn't be obedient later on and like only he would pray to his God even though he wasn't supposed to and he gets thrown into a den of lions. They're all living in Babylonian exile for a period of 70 years and it was the fulfillment of a prophecy that we'll get to in a moment. But the Babylonian empire looks kind of small right here, didn't last because they were eventually taken over by the Persian empire. And, and she's been teaching through the book of Esther. You know, you got Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then Job, and we go on into the rest of the Old Testament. But she's living in the land of Susa, which is probably right around the border of modern day Iran and Iraq. But that capital city of Persia is where she became queen, and this whole story surrounding that effort persists right here. But this is the group of people that overtook the Babylonian Empire, and they became the predominant force in the world during that generation. There's a timeline that we can show you of events that are going on. This is when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple of God, the one that Solomon had built, and deported those Israelites back to Babylon. He selected the smart, the good-looking, the well-educated. That's why I really resonate with the book of Daniel, um, to live in his palace. And to learn his customs and to live according to his ways. And because Daniel wouldn't do that, he still, under God's providence, rose to power. Well, eventually that Babylonian empire falls to the Persian. King Cyrus of Persia comes and takes the whole thing over. And then, because he's a good and benevolent king and because God moved, as we'll see, he allows the Jewish people to return to their homeland. 
Zerubbabel takes exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild God's temple. We enter into the second temple period, and then you get this moment where this is probably about the timeline of where Esther came to power, but she's still back in Persia. And then about 60 years later, we've got Ezra, and he's returning with a whole other group of exiles, and he's bringing back the word of the Lord and reinstituting worship in their practices and understanding how they can be near to God again. And then finally, Nehemiah, we're getting ready to go into a whole series. He doesn't get one week. He gets a whole bunch of them where we're going to talk about how they came back to build the walls around the city. And all in all, what you see through these passages of Scripture is that in Israel, God hasn't abandoned his people. That in Israel, God will fulfill his covenant promises. And in Israel, God is doing a new thing. You look at the timeline of what these guys came when they came in three waves to get back to the city. Zerubbabel comes and they, they build back up the temple. And then Ezra comes and they remind themselves what the word is and how they're going to cling to the instructions that God had given. And then finally Nehemiah comes and they build walls around the city so that it can be the place that God had left his name once again. And the key question that Israel continued to ask throughout the exilic period, throughout that 70-year moment where they were separated from their holy land is, is God with us while we're here? And then you get Esther and she comes along and God's name isn't mentioned in the book, but his handiwork is all over literally every single page of it. And there's this moment where we say, hey, where is God when we don't see him working? And like, what's he doing when we don't understand how he's here? Where is he during our exile? And where is he now that exile is over? And what about the ways that we're different now? What about the ways that we've been changed? What about the ways that we've been traumatized and affected? Like, what do we do now to relate to God in the same way that we did then? And how can we trust him the way that we did before? And how can we see him work the way that we understood in other ways? And I think that sometimes you and I do that too. Like, it's not exile. We're not being deported to other places. But somehow, sometimes, we go through events. We go through circumstances. And it's not lasting 70 years, but it's lasting long enough to make us wonder, where is God? What is he doing? How can I hear him? And what does this mean? And on the other side of it, having gone through the turmoil that you have walked through, you often ask the question, can I relate to him the same way that I did before? Can I connect with his people the way that I used to, having been changed in this way? So what do we do? The prevailing question that I want to ask in response to these words, and one that I think will carry us over the next couple of weeks, is what do we do after exile? What, are, what do we do when we recognize that what God did was different than what we thought if you go to the book of Second Chronicles and the history books, and it lines up so squarely with the pieces of the puzzle that come from the prophetic words in Jeremiah and in Daniel, it says this in chapter 36. He, it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword. Not everybody died when Babylon came in, and he carried that remnant back to his city, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And in that time, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of the desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word that the Lord had spoken by Jeremiah. You're wondering what that is. What does it even mean? Well, way back in that Moses instruction, here's a piece of the puzzle that we want to understand. Not only were people called to rest once every seven days, but the land was supposed to rest every seven years. And not once did Israel allow that Sabbath land rest to occur. And so when God decided to put his people in what I can only describe as a parent in a timeout, when our kids were little, we did timeout according to their ages. Like if you were two years old, you had to sit in timeout for two minutes. 
Like, if you're three years old, that timeout was three minutes. Like, and it just kind of went on. Our kids are, like, we need to put them in timeout for a whole lot longer these days because they're older. Well, Israel had a 70-year timeout in response to 490 years of not allowing God's land to rest. And when they asked that question over and over and over again, God got his 70 years back. So what about now? How do we understand him then? How do we understand him today? And how do we seek him tomorrow? We go back to the word. We revisit his, our view of his plan and his power. We always want to go back to whatever the word says. They go back to the prophet Jeremiah. They go back to the times of the prophets and understand, hey, this is what God was doing the last 70 years. This is why it happened. This is what it means. And this is how we're supposed to move forward and understand that he didn't leave us. He didn't change. He didn't stop. He didn't leave us on our own when we were in exile, and he hasn't left us on our own right now. He didn't change who he is or how very much he loves us, and he has not stopped even for one second working out his plans according to his will and his timeline. And when we revisit his word and we understand the things that he said and the reasons that he said it and the reasons that he did it, we find a piece of the puzzle that we can put in place to understand the nature of our God. So in Ezra chapter 1, it says this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, like we're no longer under Babylonian rule, there's a new king in town, King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, like always understanding that every single one of their present circumstances can be couched in what God's word says and why he said it, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. What if you and I always sat circumstances in life on the shelf of God's providence. Like, what if everything that we faced, everything that we endured, every situation that we had, what if we always took that? We've got lots of choices. There's lots of shelves in here. We've got the shelf of disappointment. We've got the shelf of this should not have happened to me the way that it happened. We've got the shelf of resentment. We've got the shelf of, well, God must have abandoned me, and I don't trust him anymore because word didn't go the way I thought it was supposed to go, and this is really problematic. Or we've got a shelf over here that says God is in control no matter what. What if we took every circumstance that we face in life? What if Israel took their circumstance in this moment, this exile, this return, this edict from Cyrus, and put it on the shelf of God's providence to say, he is doing something, and we're going to trust whatever that is. We revisit our view of God's plan and his power. It's a shift in our perspective when we understand that the thing that he's doing is to fulfill his own words to complete his own plan. And in order to do it, he moved in the heart of a pagan king. Sometimes we find that problematic because we're like, whoa, how can somebody who is outside the nation of Israel, outside the nationality of Israel, outside the, the faith of Israel, be a part of God's plan? And it blows up our perspective when we realize that God can use anyone, anywhere to accomplish his will. You talk about what it means to understand scripture out of context. Susan and I got married 23 years ago, and back then I had a metal, like a, like a white gold wedding ring, you know. Um, I don't wear that one anymore because of weight gain. Okay, um, so in the inside of that metal ring, we had inscribed the words, Jeremiah 29, 11. Y'all, we didn't know. We had no idea. We were like, oh, this is such a nice verse. 
God has plans to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us a hope and a future. And we met in college, and I love you so much, and you are my hope. You are the thing. God is prospering me. Look, I was taking these. What in the world? He was talking about y'all are going to be exiled for 70 years. You're going to go through an enormous amount of mess for your disobedience, but I'm still going to be good to you at the end of it. That is not what we wanted. We did not want 70 years of horror when we ascribe those words into our wedding rings. Like completely, like taking, like borrowing a passage of scripture and applying that directly. No, you can't, you can't understand what God is saying right now until you understand what God was saying back then. And when you understand what God was saying back then, it might change your perspective of what he's doing right now. It's not always first about us. So we revisit that plan. We understand that God was working something out. According to the word that he spoke to the prophet, he moved wherever he wanted to move. And in this moment, it happened to be a movement inside the heart of Cyrus. And our response in that moment is to recommit ourselves, to recommit our ways, to know and to follow him. Ezra chapter 3, it says when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their town. So like here we got the first year of Cyrus. They're allowed to go back. God moved in the heart of Cyrus and they're going to get to move back home. And in chapter 3, seven months later, they actually get there and they settled in their towns. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. And then it says Joshua son of Josadak and his fellow priest and Zerubbabel son of Shealtel and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. They went right back to where they were in the book of Exodus where God prescribed for them that they were going to build an altar and they were going to build a temple and they were going to have a, a lampstand and they were going to have a table of bread. Like they were going to have all these things right there together but there was an altar on the outside of it where the priests would come and sacrifice animals and that's what they did in order to be connected to the God who had saved them. They did it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses. We're going to recommit ourselves to your word to know and to follow what you said God and then it says in verse 3 despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. We're going to recommit our ways to know and follow God regardless of opposition and fear. Despite the fear of the people around them, they built that altar and they began to offer sacrifices on to it. If we don't walk away with anything else today, I would love for us to walk away with this. I'll probably say that again later on in the sermon. If we don't walk away from anything else today, and then you're going to be like, well, Nick, you told us to walk away with that, and now you're telling us, walk away with all these things. If our faith isn't regardless, it's not faith. Like, if it's not regardless of fear, regardless of opposition, regardless of corruption, regardless of challenges, regardless of threats, like, if our faith can't be characterized as a regardless kind of faith, regardless of what happens, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the struggle, regardless of the pain, regardless of what I walk through, if it can't be characterized as a regardless kind of faith, it's not really faith. We want to be a people who are willing to follow him no matter what, the direct result of that is worship. It says on, if you continue in chapter 3, that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, that they build the altar, they begin to sacrifice animals on it, and now they've completed the foundation of the temple that would be erected to God. The priests in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Aphath, with cymbals, they took their places to praise the Lord as was prescribed 
by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. When we were in exile, He's good and His love endures. When we're having a great day, He's good. His love endures. If we walk through mess tomorrow, He is good. His love endures. They sang praises to God. And it says, All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And that foundation was synonymous with the presence of God among them. They wanted that place to be built more than any other place because it would mean that God had made his home in Israel again and that they could return to regular proper worship to know and to follow and to stand out among all the other peoples of the world. But if you continue, it says in verse 12, many of the older priests, Levites, family heads, who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. And we make a lot of supposition based on those verses and reasons for those tears, but I know that people cry for a lot of different reasons. I am not one of them. Um, some of y'all have sad tears. I don't have those. Um, I, wish, I wish that I did. Some of you have angry tears. I don't have those either. Some of you have happy tears. Y'all know who you are. Like, you cry when you're happy. I don't have those either. Um, I do think something might be wrong with my tear ducts. It's, it's not masculinity, and it's not pride. Like, I want to cry, but I just don't. But these people, when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy, they wept out loud. And then it says in verse 13 that no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts from the joy of the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Some of y'all are soft criers. Some of you are ugly criers. Some of you are like, weep out loud criers. And I do know that this is an issue in and among the people, but the Bible is not super clear as to why it was happening. And I do wonder in this moment, are they weeping because they had seen the former temple and this one paled in comparison? That is quite possibly true. And then I sit back and wonder how in the world that could have happened. And I know that it happens in our day, in our generation, because there are moments in even our churches today where people are more passionate about what God did in the past than they are in pursuit and persuaded by what he's doing in the present. And that's idolatrous. Like there are moments when, 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 when tradition becomes the only lens by which someone can see God. And basically what that means is that you've stopped actually looking for God. It's not all about, like, like 30 years ago, you would have shown up at a church with a pastor who didn't have his shirt tucked in. And somebody would have walked right out the door. Because that didn't meet the expectations of, of what somebody thought of when they came to church. Or, or, or somebody 30 years ago put a drum set up on the stage and people would have walked right out. The door. Like some, That may even still be an argument in some places. I don't know. But at some point in, in our generation, some point in the generation that came before us, and some point in the generation that came before that, people elevated their traditions and their perspectives and their understandings of how we see and how we worshiped, and they missed what God was doing in the moment. And it was idolatry. I don't know if that's what's happening here in Haggai chapter 2. You know, he's the prophet that looks at the people and says, hey, you came back to town and you started building your own houses. You came back to town and you started building your own businesses while the Lord's house still lies in ruins. And so he called those guys together. He's like, hey, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, and Joshua, son of Josedak, y'all better get busy building the Lord's house among you. And he did, and then God spoke. It's written down in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. It runs parallel to what's happening here in the book of Ezra. It says, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. 
well, this one doesn't have as much gold, and this one doesn't have as much precious metals, and this one doesn't have all the rubies. Like, this one doesn't have all the cedars that came from where. Like, this one doesn't have all the same stuff that the former one did. But it had more glory because God said it. This house will be greater than the glory of the former house, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. And maybe they were, I, I don't want to throw shade on those elders, maybe, maybe they were weeping happy tears of saying, finally. And we got to see it in our lifetime. We got to see, you know, some of y'all are crying, saying, you got to see in your lifetime young people come back. You got to see in your lifetime children return. You got to see in your lifetime cures for the things that ail us and diseases and the sickness. And, the, and you got to see in your lifetime a revival that was so different than anything that you could have ever. So you're crying, weeping, wailing, sounds of joy because you got to see the way that God worked. I don't know that that's what this is, but I would hope. 200 years before any of this happened, there was another prophet, and he looked at the people of God, and he said, hey, this place that's called by my name, this temple, Amos looks at it and says, one day it's going to be the people of God that are called by my name, and not just the people of God who are in Israel, the people of God who are Gentiles. And it was those words that James, the brother of Jesus, quotes in Acts chapter 15, looking at a crowd of people who only want to let the Jews in who only want to let the Jews love Jesus, follow Jesus, be aligned with Jesus. And if you're going to follow Jesus like us, you better become Jewish like us. And James is like, we should, not, we should not make it hard for the Gentiles to follow Jesus. And he quotes Amos and saying, God was doing something new. It's to the point that someday there wouldn't be this concern with a temple being called by the name of God, but a people worldwide who are called by his name and a people who are far bigger than what we originally would have thought based on those words. And the prophet spoke it. He wasn't just talking about glory in a new temple. Because that temple got torn down too. And then a new temple came. And guess what? That temple isn't even now the temple of the people of God. It's a temple of a whole other religion. And people are looking at it again like, God, when are you going to give us this temple back? And he might just be looking at the world saying, yeah, I gave you your temple back. It's a worldwide people who declare faith in the son of the living God. Y'all didn't look. Y'all didn't find the peace. For some folks, it's still missing. And the direct result of us finding the peace and putting it in place and understanding the new thing that God was doing is worship. And when we worship, what do we do? We reform the parts of our lives that are out of step with his will. So Zerubbabel, they build that altar. Zerubbabel, they, they, they build the foundation of that temple and they erect that building. And then, and then Ezra comes back and he's passionate about reform. What's going to keep us from making all the same mistakes that they made a couple generations ago that led to exile in the first place? What's going to keep us from doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and expecting different results? You and I know that as the definition of insanity. What's going to make us different? We're going to know his word. Like the whole reform that has to happen in our lives is to know the word of God. It says in Ezra 7, it's a description of him. Ezra devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. I told you I was going to say if there's one more thing that you walk away with today. Yes, please walk away with this idea. Your faith, if it's not a regardless kind of faith, it is not faith. Please also walk away with this. Study the word. Study the word. 
when Kelly finishes up the Esther series in a couple of weeks that I'm going to be a part of every single one, I'm loving it and taking lots of notes. We're going to go right into a co-ed Bible study in this same room that's all about how do you study? How do you dig in? How do you understand the ways that the pieces of this puzzle come together when you engage the word? What if this sentence that's written down in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 you know, arguably he wrote it about himself, but that's okay. Like, what if we could say about ourselves and what if we could say about one another, we're passionate about the word of God. We are devoted to it. And more than anything else, we want to teach it to other people. We're passionate about the word of God. It does cause us to repent of our sin because we recognize the things about us that are out of step with the ways of him. It says in Ezra chapter 9, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and my cloak torn. I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached the heavens from the days of our ancestors until now. Our guilt has been great because of our sins. We and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and to captivity, to pillage and to humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. There does come a point in our life when we recognize, whoa, the mess that's around me is kind of one of my own making. Whoa, the mess that's around me is still something that God can use to draw me closer to him. And it starts with recognizing the parts of our lives that are out of step. And when we do, it doesn't stop there. Because if it stops there, that's a dangerous place to be where all you see is your own gloom and doom. We want to go to verse 8 because more than anything else, we get to remember grace. Ezra continued, but for now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. So our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Yeah, we recognize our sin. Yeah, we recognize our shame. Yeah, we recognize the things about us that are out of step with the will and the ways and the working of God. But then we rest in grace. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally, in their Hebrew context, just one book. Just, just one story of the people as they returned from exile into the land and what it looked like for them to rebuild their lives and rebuild the place of God among them. And in both cases, it didn't turn out exactly like they thought. And both books are kind of anticlimactic in what they did. Yes, it's a return to faith. Yes, it's a return to word. Yes, it's a return to worship. But it ultimately left even something greater to be desired. And they're on hands and knees and they're looking for like, what is the final missing piece? God had it in his pocket the whole time. Because if you fast forward, the thing that's missing from Ezra, the thing that's missing from Nehemiah is Jesus. Ezra might have been for the returning remnant from the kids who were born in exile and from the folks who remembered that older temple. It might have been a finally God, God provided. Finally, God rescued. Finally, God did exactly what. But still not yet. The whole book of Ezra, in fact, every book of Old Testament scripture that you and I want to read, whether it's a law book, whether it's a history book, whether it's a prophecy book, is a finally, but still not yet promise. Reminding us who God is and what he miraculously does and what he was going to do. Daniel and all his friends carted off to live in Babylon, knowing that that exile was going to last 70 years. Many of them did not make it out. And Daniel lived under the time of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and he lived under the time of Cyrus when he came back and allowed the Jews to start going home. But Daniel was still stuck there in the Babylonian, the Persian Empire. And in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, he 
has a vision. It says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, Ezra did that, and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord for his holy hill. While Daniel was literally praying, God, 70 years are up. Will you let us return? God, 70 years are up. Will you let us build that temple? 70 years are up. Will you, will you put your name on us again and let us live in the land that you provided? He says, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, and if you're thinking Christmas, we'll get there soon. Hang on. Hobby Lobby's got their decorations out, but that doesn't mean we're going there quite yet. But this is that guy comes to Mary, tells her about the whole deal. There's a missing piece of the puzzle. I'm about to tell you what it is. It's that Gabriel, the man that I had seen in an earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. You know, Ezra was doing something at an evening sacrifice. It says, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. Sign me up, because I want that too. I'm going to show you a missing piece of the puzzle. I've been on my hands and knees looking. How in the world does this all fit together? He's about to tell him. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And then he does a whole lot of math. You don't have to concern yourself with that today. But he says, 77s are decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy place. Well, that's a whole lot more than 70 years, God. You're doing a whole lot more than what this exile is. There must be a missing piece of the puzzle that I don't quite see yet. And then he says, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's what they wanted. Until the anointed one, there's the missing piece. The ruler, from the time he comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, a whole lot of math. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death. And we'll have nothing. Everything we learn from Ezra, I mean Genesis all the way through it. Everything we learn after Ezra, whether it's Esther, whether it's Nehemiah, whether it's the remaining prophets in the Old Testament, or the 400 year period that lasted in between, every single part of it is supposed to be you and on our hands and knees looking for that missing piece. And God had it all along. It was a Savior named Jesus. So we read the book of Ezra, we read the books of Nehemiah, we read all the other prophets and all the other fantastic stories that are about God's people in their day and in their generation, and we realize that all along God was pointing them to a peace and a place and a person. It's Jesus. And then you put it in. Found a piece, found a piece, found a piece. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, it's God. We just did a whole series called God is Able. We, we said now to him, it's him alone. God. He's the one who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership upon us. He put his spirit, missing peace, in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. We titled this message, God is doing a new thing. And he told us he was going to do it. And all we have to do is look, pay attention, and understand, and be his because of Jesus. Everything about Ezra is about our king. Everything going forward has always been and will always be only about Christ. Our sin is the reason that he came. 
and the provision that he gives us is life abundant when we know and trust him. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to be a people of praise and worship. We want to be a repentant people who commit our ways to knowing your word and following what it says and trusting that when things are difficult, trusting when things are confusing, trusting that no matter what, you're working everything out according to your will and your way, and that regardless of what the rest of the puzzles of our lives look like, Jesus is the final piece. Help us to see him and to trust him and to pull that piece out of our pocket and share it with others. It's in his powerful name that we pray these things today. Thank you for showing us, God, who you are. Amen. Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning services to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore the Christian faith, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into the Word of God. So, listen in as we jump into what the Lord has for us today. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on a single sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Church Center app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.